my background, for those of you that don't know me, um, I, actually I'm a firefighter, I'm not a pastor, um, and you may be wondering why in the world would Steve have a firefighter come up here and talk about trust? Because that's the topic today is trust, and it's a huge, huge topic um, that, uh, that we're going to be tackling, and um, uh, you know, what does a firefighter have to teach us on, on trust? Um, and you know, we'll kind of get to that, but I do want to tell you that I actually do have some experience in counseling, uh, and I actually have done a number of counseling uh, with couples, both pre-marriage counseling and then also when the wheels fall off their marriage, and then uh, they have come to me for counseling. So I do have a counseling uh, background a little bit, and I do work with a lot of couples, um, and uh, so that's you know kind of a, a little bit of why uh, Steve asked me to come and speak uh, this morning. If you heard Steve's uh, and Pam, they shared last week, and uh, in their message, I guess they made reference to uh, to me and my wife. Uh, yes, we were involved in their lives when they were dating and and that whole courtship thing. Uh, we were part of that story. Um, and uh, sometimes you'll hear uh, Steve will say that you know uh, he has. My wife and I had to thank for his uh, for his marriage and for his family and all that stuff. And he's like, oh, I owe you so much. And but I also know when Steve and Pam are arguing because Steve calls me and says, this is all your fault. So, it's, yeah, all right, all right. But um, uh, but that is um, uh, kind of a little bit about our background. And I, I was going to use this morning an illustration on how trust is built amongst teams. And I thought, you know, it'd be great to give this great illustration based on a sports team. And uh, I had a really hard time trying to come up with a team that I could use an illustration on how you trust one another. And I know that there's a football game being played, like probably starting in two minutes. Um, and I got to be honest with you, I don't know anything about football. Um, I, I, I follow, you know, like track and cross country and running sports. And that's the sport that I'm most passionate about. And I'm not real familiar with football. Um, the closest I come to football is that when I was growing up, I lived next to this amazing gal who was a runner, and she was a phenomenal runner. I loved her to death. Um, her name was Terry Largent, and uh, her husband, Steve, had something to do with the f- uh, football team. It was something like that, but, um, but I did uh, get to play basketball. I, I, you know, every now and then, my, my dad and I would challenge Steve and his friend Jim to uh, a two-on-two basketball uh, thing in our front yard, so... That's as close as I get to football. Sorry. But I do have some things I think I can share to you about how trust is built within a team environment based on firefighting. Um, You know, uh, firefighters have to trust one another. And the entire crew integrity is based on my trusting the guys I work with and them trusting me. And, you know, a few weeks back, uh, we have a, a fire, it's a, a bedroom fire, and the first arriving crew, they get on the, the hose line, and that's called the attack line, and they enter into what we call the IDLH environment. It stands for Immediate Death and Life Hazard. Not a great place to be hanging out in, but that's my job is to go into those kind of environments. So uh, the attack crews, of course, they go rushing in there to where the fire is. Uh, then there's a backup line, and that's the line that on this particular fire I got to hang out on. And the backup line's whole job is to protect the crew that's on the attack line. Make sure that if anything goes wrong, they can get out quickly. Uh, make sure that they stay safe as much as possible. So definitely there's a huge amount of trust between the guys on the attack line and the guys in the backup line. But, of course, I'm also in that ideal edge environment. So there's a third crew standing outside behind us, uh, and they are the rapid intervention crew, or called the RIC 
crew. And uh, they stand out there and they're just ready at a moment's notice. If something goes horribly wrong, they're going to come in and they're going to yank us out. That's trust. The only reason I'm inside that fire is because I have complete trust in the guys that are standing outside. They're going to pull me out if something goes wrong. The only reason the guys in the attack line are down the end of that hallway where the fire is is because they trust that I have competency enough in my firefighting skills that if something goes bad with them, I can go get them out of there and and we can all go home uh, back to our families at the end of the shift. And that's what it's all about. So I understand trust firsthand because when I say that literally in my world, trust is a life or death situation, I think you can appreciate, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. But I also want to suggest to you that trust in our marriage is also equally as important because our marriage relationship is the most important relationship we can have. And whether or not you have trust or you don't have trust can really make or break a marriage. And we all bring with ourselves past experiences on trust into a relationship before we even find that person that we maybe want to get married to. We kind of have these these maybe trust issues. And, and sometimes it just starts with the confusion. Um, notice what we teach our kids. What do we teach our kids? Don't trust everyone. Stranger danger. Now, I'm not suggesting we stop teaching kids to be, you know, appropriate, you know, kind of fear in a good way of people you don't know um, kind of a thing. That's certainly a safety issue. But all of a sudden, from a very young age, it's like, okay, wait a minute. I can't trust these people, but I'm supposed to trust these people and and all that kind of stuff. And so we carry that into us. And then maybe past relationships where we find out, you know, situations where I gave my heart to somebody and it got stomped on and I have a hard time trusting you know, when you meet somebody and you think, oh, I kind of like this person, and you start building that relationship, what you're really looking at is, can I trust this person? And we call that process dating. And as we go through that dating you know, cycle, we kind of are looking at, is this really somebody that I can trust enough to give my heart to for the rest of my life? And at the core of that dating relationship is trust. By the way, in Stephen Pam's story, uh, as my wife and I were, were walking it through that, and, I, and like I said, you know, St- Stephen and Pam have a, a version of their story. My wife and I have a version of the story as well of how Stephen and Pam met together. Uh, our story involves the word knuckleheaded a whole lot more than his does. So, but their big issue was trust. So as they were walking through their courtship, the biggest thing that uh, they wrestled with was trust. And once that got cleared up, boom, it was wedding bells. I mean, it really was that fast. But um, that was a big component of what they struggle with so much. And when you get married, well, then you think like, this is the great, this is the beginning. Life is going to be rosy. And sometimes it's not so rosy. Let's pray before we jump into it. Lord, we're tackling a very, very big topic here of trust. And I know that there's people in this room that have struggled with this issue. And it may be from a minor issue of struggling with trust. And yet we recognize there's some people in this room that have had devastating relationships in their marriage because of absolute devastation and core trust issues where trust has been completely wiped out. Lord, help us to walk through this, looking at what your word tells us. And Lord, I pray that you use me as your uh, instrument and your mouthpiece uh, as we uh, walk through what is actually a very complex issue. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the day that you got married, you probably stood before your friends and your family. And uh, you stood in front of these people and you shared, uh, you know, professions of your love and some vows and proclamations. And you may have even had a Bible verse read. 
And certainly one of the most popular Bible verses to have read at a wedding is this one. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 13. It's a very familiar Bible passage on love. And it says this, says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. And that's a great warm fuzzy that we have at our weddings and we think that's just going to be wonderful for forever and ever. And, but the harsh realities are that sometimes love does fail. And sometimes it does get hard. The protecting and the hoping that that, vibe, uh, that verse uh, talks about begins to erode. And all of a sudden the perseverance becomes a burden within our marriage. And trusts is lost. And other things on that list begin to fall apart. You become impatient with each other. Kindness is lost. And then pride enters the equation. All of a sudden, each person is more interested in what they can get out of their marriage and not what they can give. That whole focus turns. Anger becomes front and center. Uh, how, I can't tell you how many times I've heard an angry spouse say, here's a list of everything that they have done wrong in our marriage. Does that sound like keeping records of wrong that the passage said love doesn't have any part of? Delighting in evil and denying the truth becomes commonplace. I've heard couples say to one another, I don't care what you have to say. I want you to pay for what you've done to this marriage. And what about the always trust? It says that love always trusts in that passage. But sometimes trust is so shattered that even getting these two people in a room together to begin the discussion of how to rebuild their marriage and how to rebuild trust is next to impossible because it has just been completely decimated. But remember how the relationship started? It started little by little building trust. That's not unlike a, a house of cards. Uh, we start stacking it together and card by card, you start putting them together and pretty soon you assemble it and then the next row and the next row and the next row. And how easy is it to make one wrong move and poof, the entire house collapse. Trust is the same way. It takes step by step, little by little. And repairing it can be very, very difficult. Well, how do we fix it? Well, I wish there was an easy way. Uh, in about a month, my wife and I are going to be back up here and we're going to share some of our testimony. And, uh, you know, we've not always had the, the strongest or the, the greatest marriage. We'll delve into that a little bit uh, next month. But, uh, you know, when it comes to like those difficult times in marriage and wanting to fix it, uh, being a firefighter, that's what I do. I fix things. I mean, that's you call me. I show up in just a few minutes and I'm there to fix things and we're done. We're back at the station. We're going to move on to the next one. So you can imagine how well that goes in a marriage. Okay. She comes to me, right? Got it. We're going to fix this right now. Done. All right, moving on. Uh, and so I thought this is a great way to fix our marriage. Here's a book on marriage. Here's a highlighter. You take the book. I want you to read the book. Highlight everywhere in that book you think I need work on. Okay? And then I'll read it and then I'll know what I need to work on. Okay? So she got a little glean in her eye, snatched the book and the highlighter and toddled off. And <clears throat> she came back 17 minutes later. 
And she says, the highlighter ran out of ink. And I said, no problem. I got another highlighter, brand spanking new. This will be good for you. Okay, the glean returned her eye and off she went. She came back 11 minutes later. She says, uh, highlighter ran out of ink again. And I said, I think we got a problem. This isn't working so well. Which, of course, she said, you're right, because I haven't even made it out of the introduction yet. So <laughs> we would like to, fix, or like to think that that would be a great way and super simple to be able to fix things. But the truth is, we can never build our marriage approaching how we can fix the other person. We can only rebuild or fix our marriage based on changing myself. I, I can't affect the other person. I can only affect myself. I can only make change in myself. You see, I have couples come in and they say, you know, there's problems in our marriage and this other person is causing all the problems. Of course, I turn to the other spouse and they say the same thing. Our marriage is having problems and it's all their fault. And what they're looking for is not a counselor that's going to help them. What they really want is they want a referee. They want somebody that can look at this situation and say, okay, you tell me all the stuff that, you know, the other person's doing and you tell me all the stuff that your other person's doing and then I'll weigh who is got it, you know, who, who's doing the worst in the marriage. And we'll put on the scales and however the scale tips and we can say, okay, this spouse over on this side, they're more at fault because when we put them on the scales, it went thunk like this. And so they got all the problems. So although you got problems on the scale over here, it's not as bad. So yeah, you're right. I agree with you. The ruling on the field is this is the person with the problems causing it all. If I did that, let's draw that out to the logical conclusion. That couple goes home and now the spouse on this side says, see, he agreed with me. Every problem in our marriage is your fault. You have to start working on it. You have to start fixing it. How does that make this person feel over here? Now, they may start working on it, but you, can you hear the language of this person over here, how pride and arrogance is now entering into that relationship? So all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what this person does to fix the marriage. Because as they start to rebuild the marriage, and yeah, the scales may come back to even, all of a sudden they're going to get to this point and go whomp. Because this person over here got so filled with pride and arrogance, and you're absolutely right, this is all your fault, and you better fix it. And, you, and, and now that's not reconciliation, that's just swapping the scales from here to here. And how many marriages go through the seesaw effect? Because they're not dealing with the heart issues, they're just trying to place blame. And once blame is pushed off onto the other person, then it becomes their issues and I don't have to work on anything. It's never a good way to approach it. Because you see, the patterns of sin are what cause us to do the things we're going to do. And when we look at things that destroy a marriage, we're going to look at that here in just a little bit. But usually it's not just that, let's say, let's pick the, the, the most egregious thing that I think a lot of us can agree with. Let's say a spouse has an adulterous affair. They commit adultery. Now, did that just happen? Well, they just like walking down the sidewalk and went, you know what, today it just looks like a good day to have, have commit adultery. No. Usually there's a choice that led to that. So as a counselor, what we have to do is start backing up the choices of, you know, okay, the person had, had an affair and committed adultery on, at this moment. But what was going on here right before that happened? 
What was going on in their heart? What was going on here? And how about here? And how about back here? And then let's bring the other spouse into it. Because uh, marriage is two people. What, what kind of sin patterns is going on in the other spouse? And usually we have to back all the way up over to here. What was your marriage doing at this point that led the trail for one or the other or something or whatever to get us all the way back over here? And those are the kind of things we unpack. And what we discover is that it really comes down to patterns of sin. We certainly know that, that Jesus calls us to be trustworthy. That's not a mystery. Uh, Jesus wants us to be trustworthy people. Uh, he used a, a great parable um, that, that really speaks on this. And the parable was, you know, it's found in Luke 19. And by the way, I don't have any slides. So if you're waiting for slides to appear, they're not going to appear. Um, but uh, definitely have your Bible ready because we're going to start racing through some scriptures. But in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable of uh, a, a, a master that gives 10 minutes. or such a small amount of money to uh, his servants. Uh, he gives, you know, it's you're probably familiar with the parable. One gets 10, one gets five, so on and so forth. And he goes away on a trip and he comes back and he collects it back up and he says to the, uh, the, the servant uh, that has, was given 10 minutes and the servant gave him back his 10 plus produced 10 more. And what does the master say? The master says, well done, my good servant. His master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. What the master is recognizing is you are a trustworthy and faithful person and, and this was a very small area that you were, that I you know, could trust you in. So I'm going to take you and put you in charge of not just one whole city, ten whole cities. So Jesus tells us that trust is important. And if we are faithful and become trustworthy, we'll be granted more. But there's a lot that can destroy trust. Destroyers of trust include things like lies, deceit, Words, actions, all those things can destroy trust. And where does this come from and, and how do we let this enter our marriage? Again, remember the wedding day. No, nobody sits up front on their wedding day and thinks, you know, I bet you this will only lasts maybe a few months or maybe a couple of years and then we'll start hating each other. No, what do I get when I counsel couples who are waiting to get married? We love each other. We don't ever fight. We're never going to fight. We're different. And I try and help them to understand one very important concept found in Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what does that passage not say? Notice the passage doesn't say, for all husbands have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? It doesn't say for all wives have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God until we understand that we are sinners and that we bring that into the marriage relationship. I'm a sinner, my wife's a sinner, and we're going to put two sinners together and then we act like bad things aren't going to happen or how about matthew fifteen eighteen that says but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person for out of the heart comes evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness 
slander. These are what defile a person. When we understand that that's in our hearts, Christ says, this is what's in a person's heart. Do those things sound like things that would maybe destroy trust in a marriage? Adultery? Slander? Sexual immorality? We see the same principle again in Luke 6.43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So we've got a heart issue. We've got a sin problem and a heart problem that needs to be contended with. And that's what tends to break, mar- uh, break trust down in our marriage. And the culture is no different. Uh, or, or rather, the culture is no help with this. Uh, what does the culture tell us? Have you heard this statement? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. As if I could go somewhere geographically, sin, and come back, and there's no consequences. My experience is what happens in Vegas ruins your marriage back home. Or how about this statement? What happens in my head doesn't affect others. My thoughts are my thoughts. My fantasy life is my fantasy life. It's not bothering anybody else. Or I can't tell you how many men I have sat with and counseled. And they said, yes, I'm addicted to pornography. It's a private sin doesn't affect anybody else. I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me. Sadly, later on, I'm sitting with that same man and his wife, and she's sobbing because now she's discovered that her husband has an addiction to pornography. And I look at him and I say, can you tell me again how your sin is not hurting anybody? Because why is she sobbing? She looks pretty hurt to me. Or how about... I can do what I want. This doesn't affect you. My life is my life. How does that work in a marriage? Or how about that just simply, I deserve this. The American dream. I deserve to have this. And this could be anything. It could be something tangible. It could be actually something materialistic. But it's just that idea that I deserve something that speaks of somebody that uh, has their eyes focused on themselves and not on the other person in their marriage you know sometimes when i'm counseling a couple i'll just kind of get the idea that i think there's some secrecy and lying and deceitfulness going on in here maybe from one or maybe from both so here's how i get to the heart of it really fast i say okay here's what we're gonna do i want you to take your cell phones out put them on the table right now both cell phones on the table Here's a piece of paper. Slide the paper in front of them. I says, you're going to write on that paper every access code, password to every account on your phone. Email, text, Facebook, Snapchat, internet history, everything. And then when you get all those on there, we're going to swap phones and papers. And for the next 20 to 30 minutes, you get to look at everything on your spouse's phone. Everything. Histories, what's been going on, who they've been calling, who've been talking to. Go. And quite often at that moment, one or both spouses will get up and walk out of the room. And that's usually the last time I ever see them. That's 
usually the end of the end of the counseling session and the end of, of them wanting to work on their marriage. What does that tell you? Well, I just proved that there's deceit and secrecy and that they don't want their spouse to know what's really going on. You think that breaks trust? Yeah. You see, with my, me and my wife, I, I want her to trust me. I want to be trustworthy. I give her my phone and say, here you go. Here's the passwords because if I get ran over by a cement mixer, you need to know how to get into all this stuff. She's, she's also got on my phone the GPS-enabled thing so she can find me at any moment at the push of a button. She knows exactly where I'm at. So if I get ran over by a cement mixer, she knows where I'm at. It, it's, it's something that I do freely because I don't have anything to hide from her. When my phone rings, half the time she's the one that picks it up off the table and goes, oh, so-and-so's calling you. I'm like, okay, great. Tell them I'm taking a nap and I'll call them back later. So, um, yeah, I don't have secrets. That builds trust. She can trust me because she knows she can pick up my phone any moment and say, huh, wonder what's going on. So how do we fix this? Now, I recognize that some marriages have extremely deep scars of infidelity. Or maybe even abuse or neglect. I mean that there are some serious, serious things going on in your marriage. In that situation, there's nothing I can say in 35 minutes you know, that's going to answer all your problems. Uh, if you are in that boat, then I really highly encourage you, if you haven't already, you need to find a counselor that you can trust. There's that word again. Uh, and, and deal with some of those issues. Because uh, those are going to take more than just one Sunday can address. But the majority of couples, the issue of trust is pretty much one where it's been slowly eroded. We, we might not be out of trust, but it's definitely taken its toll. Uh, and it's taken a hit on, on how our trust has eroded over time. And if that's the case, then where we need to begin re- rebuilding our, our steps, or I'm sorry, rebuilding our trust, is by addressing those steps of sin. Like I said, you know, we may have some egregious act that happened here that blew trust out of the water in the marriage, but we need to go all the way back over here to this side and start addressing what were the sin steps that led slowly and day by day over to that. And the only way we can do that is through true repentance. That's the way. Now, I said true repentance. And by the way, this is the part where you can only change yourself. This is not where you start elbowing your spouse Did you hear what he said? Or do the under your breath, amen to that. No, this is you. This is between you and the Lord. Right here. We're going to look at Daniel 9. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 9. Because this gives us a picture of true repentance. I could do an eight-week course on just Daniel 9. That's about how long it would take. For me to do a a sermon series on just this one chapter. And I'm going to take eight weeks and condense it down into just a very short period of time. So definitely we're skimming over the top of it. I encourage you, spend time in Daniel chapter 9 if you want to understand what repentance looks like. Now our repentance tends to be shallow. When I say the word repentance, we go, okay, yeah, I, I get that. Asking for forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. It tends to be shallow. I call it the toddler repentance. My, my two boys, I got two, two boys, 
they're all grown up and, and in college, out of college now, actually. Uh, but when they were little, of course, you know, they'd get in, a, you know, some kind of a scuffle and they'd be mad at each other. And so now, you know, the parents have to step in and, and try and you know, resolve this issue. And we want to teach them the idea of asking forgiveness, saying you're sorry and all stuff. So what do we say? Say you're sorry to your brother. And what do they get? <sighs> sorry. No, no, no. Look them in the eye and say you're sorry. So then what do you get? Sorry. Is that true repentance? No. But don't we do that? Or how about this statement? I'm sorry you feel that way. How does that make you feel? Yeah. I'm sorry you have to pick your arm up that just got ripped out of your socket. So. Um, there's a tendency for us to, be, to, to not deal with our genuine brokenness, brokenness over sin. We tend to shy away from true brokenness over sin. There's a tendency for us to be proud as opposed to humble. Our pride prevents us from really bearing ourselves and saying, yes, I have sinned and I need to seek repentance. See, Daniel's deep and powerful uh, uh, repentance is found in this chapter 9 and it's, and it's through his prayer. And we're going to pull five observations from this. Five observations out of Daniel chapter 9. Now, we pick up the story. You remember, Daniel is a young man, was snatched, pulled away to a different culture, uprooted from his family, everything. The, the people of Jerusalem were scattered. And Daniel 9 has essentially been in captivity. And now we find the story. It's been 70 years. Now, if Daniel was 17 years old, or roughly around there when he got taken... How old is he now? He's 87 years old. He's an old man. And he's been following the prophets, the prophecies, and he knew that uh, the desolation of Jerusalem would last about 70 years. And we're getting close to the end of those 70 years. So he's like, it is time to get on my knees for the sake of, of my people because we have done bad things. And that 70-year period is coming to an end and it is time to deal with the Lord. And that's where we pick up the story of his prayer. Here are the five things we can see of what true repentance looks like. Number one, it acknowledges God's various warnings. See, Daniel knew that God had warned them. Verses four, four and five, we see him addressing this. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Daniel acknowledges you were trying to tell us, God, you made it clear what we were supposed to be doing and we rebelled and we didn't do it. I find that most people in counseling, they know what they need to do. They know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They just choose not to. I don't think I've ever had a counseling thing where I have to tell people, hey, just a note you, you may want to be truthful to your spouse. And they go, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you taught me that. No, they know that. They know the principles. They're just choosing not to do it. But what Daniel is saying here is, you warned us. And we went after our own sinful and selfish desires, even though you told us not to. Are you willing to accept and go back and acknowledge that God has warned you, but you didn't listen. 
And that has led to problems in your marriage. Number two, Daniel acknowledges sin to the fullest degree. He does not sugarcoat it. Did you hear his words in that? He says, we have been wicked and have rebelled. He doesn't say, oh, we might have kind of sort of like messed up. That's how we tend to repent. I, I, okay, I, I kind of messed up. What does that mean? No, we were wicked and we rebelled. When I'm counseling with somebody and there is infidelity, I say, every time we say the word, it's going to be adultery. Because the Bible doesn't say the word affair. The Bible says the word adultery. You didn't have an affair. In the 1920s, an affair was something you went to to have fun. Adultery is what the Bible calls the sin that you committed. What am I doing? I'm trying to get that person to realize you have sinned and we're going to call sin, sin. If you lied, say you lied. And Daniel realizes that he can't sugarcoat the sin and needs to call it for what it is. Number three, it accepts full consequences, full consequences without complaint. Verses 7 through 14 is, is Daniel saying, you know, the consequences are what they are, God, and we accept them. Now, Daniel could have played the victim, couldn't he? Seventy years in captivity. His whole entire life. He is an old man. Couldn't he say, God, you, I have wasted my life. I could have done a great and amazing things, but no, I'm here. Why did you let this happen and start blaming God? Daniel doesn't do that. He recognizes that these are consequences of the people disobeying God and that he accepts those consequences. He doesn't blame God. And then number four, he focuses on the character of God, which is an interesting step. Verses 15 through 17, he says, Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. What's, what's Daniel doing? He's saying, God, you are amazing. You are absolutely amazing. I remember that you brought the people out of Egypt, that you were faithful, that you were true, that you did amazing works. He is recognizing the character of God, that God is an amazing God. This is during his repentance, acknowledging who God is. That's so important because it gets our eyes off ourselves and onto a holy God. And then number five, he begs for God to respond. See, when Daniel's doing this, he takes the position of a mourner. If you go back and look in verse 3, it says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. He is taking the position of a deep mourner. That's the position. He's coming to God saying, I am grieving now that I see the depths of my sin. And so he comes back at the, at the end and he begs for God to respond. He says, Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act for your sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. 
He's begging and crying out for God. That is true repentance. That's what repentance looks like. If you have wronged your spouse and broken trust, I would recommend making a repentance list and handing it to your spouse. There is nothing more beautiful than two spouses sharing repentance lists. But I got a hint for you. As you're making that list, they will want it to be a robust list. This is not a list of, remember, oh, I screwed up. Yeah, remember when I said I was going to go to Albertsons, I, I, I lied and I went to Hagen's instead. That, that's, that's not repentance. They will want a robust list. If you're the one receiving the list, remember, don't let pride enter it. Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I'm not suggesting that you and your spouse are enemies, although I've been in situations where they act like they are. But what the principle of this is saying is, if someone comes to you, you can't turn and say, Ah, I knew it. Yeah, this list, this is, this is horrible stuff and I'm going I'm to make you pay for that. No, 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 we talked about that at the beginning. Repay evil for good. Accept it humbly. That will begin the foundation of rebuilding the trust in your marriage. I'm going to have the ushers begin passing out the elements of communion we're going to take here in just a moment and they have the uh, worship team come up to the stage. But remember the scales illustration. If we try and repay evil for evil, we just keep in that seesaw. But more importantly, rebuilding trust takes time. You know, I I deal with fires and I see houses that get partially or completely destroyed by fires. And sometimes the partially destroyed are the ones that are harder to rebuild. We had a fire a couple years ago and it was a kitchen fire that extended to the upstairs. Probably only about a third of the house is destroyed, which is pretty significant damage. Took them 18 months before they could move back into their house. How long do you think it took that house to build initially from scratch? Less than 18 months. Because they had to peel away the damage, get back to the good, and then begin rebuilding from that point out. And I want to suggest that sometimes rebuilding trust takes longer than the initial building of trust during your courtship. And that happens on a day-by-day basis. You can't rebuild trust in special moments, meaning you can't just go out on some quick romantic date night and think that that's going to wash everything away. Remember the house of cards. We took us days and weeks to build up and a moment to destroy. It's going to take days and weeks to build back up. There's a counselor, uh, Paul David Tripp, and... um, He's got a, 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 a marriage on uh, what, what did you expect? We're going through that with uh, some of the couples here at Northview. And I love his statement where he says, marriage is defined in the mundane moments of your life. 
Meaning we tend to think that marriage is like these big moments, these big hilltop, you know, woohoo, look at this, look at how great we are. But the truth is we get up in the morning, we try and get the kids off to school, we go to work, we do this, that, whatever, we come home, we fix dinner, we do shopping, we get the kids to the sports, we crash in bed exhausted, and we get up and do the next morning. That's where your marriage is built, in those kind of moments. That's what over a course of a lifetime you discover, wow, we've got a lot here. Marriage is defined by the mundane moments of your life and trust is built in the mundane. And little by little, that trust will be rebuilt. Well, ultimately, we need to put our trust in the Lord. Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And see, I need to be drawing close to the Lord. When my spouse sees me drawing close to the Lord, that will build trust in them. And here's how it works. If you are growing closer to the Lord and your spouse is growing closer to the Lord, then you're going closer together. That's a whole other sermon topic unto itself. But that's where our eyes need to be focused on, is on the Lord. Steve's always harping on couples need to pray together. Why do you think he says that every time? Because if my focus is on the Lord and we're praying together, prayer is an intimate act. You want to build intimacy in your marriage? Start praying together. Because it shows us intimacy with going closer to the Lord and intimacy with each other. And is the Lord trustworthy? Can I trust in him? Absolutely. You're holding the very picture of trustworthiness. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but keep reading. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. The cross represents that Christ can be trusted. You can trust in the Lord that he wants your marriage to be rebuilt. That through repentance, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging your heart issue, but doing that with your spouse, that's where we see trust rebuilt into it. When I say we're all sinners, we would think that, well, that's then we're defeated before we start. No, Christ at the cross said it's not over, that there is a way. And when Jesus was with the disciples, he says, I want you to take this bread because this represents my body that was given for you. And when we eat, we remember that. Let's eat together. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. This cup represents that blood that filled that gap between our sin and God that we read about in Romans 3. And when Christ was with his disciples, he wanted to leave that picture so they'd have something to remember this very vital, important fact that we can come to the Lord because he covers us. He said, this cup represents my blood, which is a new covenant drink and remember Lord we come before you knowing that trust is something that can get so easily damaged and is so difficult to rebuild but Lord I pray for couples that may be struggling with that that they would be able to turn towards you and through our coming closer to you through true repentance of a holy God that that would help begin the seeds of trust in our marriage that may have been damaged or may have been so stripped away 
Lord, help us to, in our marriages, regrow, rebuild the trust as our eyes are fixed on you. In your name we pray. Amen.